Good morning, church. I hope everyone had a great Christmas celebration. Regardless if you stayed here or uh, just got back from traveling, I'm really glad you're here this morning. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Joel Ferguson, and I've been attending Richfield Bible Church going on for about five years now. I've been fortunate enough to sit under the teaching of Pastor Brian all semester, uh, going through the book of Mark at Bethlehem Baptist Seminary, where I go to school every Monday night. Because of this, Mark has become my favorite gospel to read for three reasons. One, it's the shortest gospel and a great place to start if you're not familiar with Jesus or you're walking through with somebody who's not familiar with Jesus. Two, the stories are action-packed with great detail, more than the other accounts. And three, the author delivers a compelling case of who Jesus is. Another reason why I like Mark so much is that my earliest memories of this church were listening to Pastor Brian go through the teaching of of the Gospel of Mark. I'm not sure if everyone here remembers their first Sunday at this church, but I do remember the first time I came here. I remember the church was still meeting in the gymnasium of Centennial Elementary School. And that Sunday I visited, back in 2019, Brian preached on Mark 4, 35-41. Because I remember this sermon so much because of the vivid details that is found in the reading of this great story of the storm, which is really similar to the same effect when you read Jonah, and also the great display uh, of Jesus' power over creation. Now, I'm not guaranteeing the same effect for any of you today, (laughs) as this is something I've never done. I've never preached a sermon in my life. Um, And as nerve-wracking as that is, I wouldn't want to be sharing this first in my life uh, anywhere else. Uh, This church has known me so well over the past five years. And I can't think of a better passage that I would want to share from my heart to this church than from Mark's Gospel. So with that, please open your Bibles this morning with me to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. The section we're going to cover this morning takes place in the first part of Jesus' ministry. Up until this point, Jesus has been traveling all over uh, the region of Galilee, teaching, casting out demons, healing the sick and the paralyzed, Much of what Jesus promised when he said these uh, words in the first start of uh, chapter 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now here in Mark 4, the author makes the reader slow down and hear a little bit about what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus starts to teach by the sea to the crowds. One example of the teaching you might be familiar with is the parable of the sower. Uh, This teaching is happening on the north side of the Sea of Galilee in a small town of Capernaum. This is most likely the home base for Jesus' ministry and his disciples, where Jesus is teaching on the shore and also calling his disciples, young guys whom Jesus loves dearly, many whom were fishermen, working the same waters of the story we find today in the text. 
the teaching, but the teaching ends in verse 34, and consistent with how Mark presents his gospel, the story quickly picks back up, and uh, Mark continues to show the disciples and us as readers who Jesus is. So that brings us to our text today. Um, look at me with Mark, at Mark 4, verse 35. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. Now these two first verses set the scene of the story. But I want us to be really clear on what exactly is happening in the story and where it's heading. On that day when evening had come indicates that this story is part of a bigger story in Mark. And if you read all of Mark 4 together, starting in verse 1, um, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got in the boat and sat in on the sea, with this verse, verse 35, on that day, it reads as if the whole fourth chapter of Mark's gospel is a one-day narrative, and these last six verses are the ending hours. Next, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go across to the other side. Now, on the other side of what? Now, based on what is happening, we know that Jesus is talking about the Sea of Galilee, the same place where much of his ministry has been happening up until this point. But why would Jesus want to go to the other side? Mark doesn't say, but one possible reason would be after a long day of teaching and the increasing fame of Jesus, Jesus wants to find somewhere to rest. Now, another reason why Jesus would want to travel to the other side is his desire to take the good news to the, of the kingdom to other regions outside of Galilee. All of Jesus' ministry at this point has been taking place in Galilee, which is predominantly Jewish. And we will see, starting in chapter 5, that Jesus starts to take the gospel outside of Galilee to other regions, known uh, also Gentile regions. So... The disciples take Jesus into the boat and start to head to the other side of the lake. Now let's continue at verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling up. Now before we continue with the story, I want to take a step back and quickly touch on some details on the PowerPoint I think will be helpful. So if you take a look at this map, you notice that uh, the town of Capernaum, which they're currently at, they're kind of on the north side, um, and maybe they were teaching, and, and the, the, the guy who drew the, drew the map highlighted the cove of the sower. I'm not sure if they were there, but they're around this area. And in chapter 5, Jesus will start to take his ministry outside of Galilee to maybe this town of Girgasa. So far, I've been using sea or lake interchangeably. Much as we, what we understand about the sea, uh, sea of Galilee is that it feels much more like an inland lake than what we would think of as a sea. Um, we do know that uh, the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and 7 miles wide. And if you aren't familiar with lakes in Minnesota, it's a little bit smaller than, well, I'll try to say this correctly, uh, Lake Winnebigoshish or as I prefer to call it, uh, Lake Winnie, uh, near Grand Rapids, Minnesota, there on the map. But different than the lakes in Minnesota, the lake that they are crossing 
is known for extremely dangerous conditions. Because of the geography and the steep sides of the shore, the cooler air comes down over the hills and collides with the basin of the lake, which is warmer, and would cause sudden storms. Gusts of winds that in the afternoon have been recorded to create waves up to seven feet high, uh, which is uh, way larger than I've ever seen on any lakes in Minnesota. Uh, So when it comes to what boat they may be traveling in, I want you to take a look at this ancient boat that was discovered buried in the silt of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, This was found about 40 years ago, and this boat has been dated by archaeologists to the same time period of Jesus, allowing us the opportunity to picture exactly what kind of boat that Jesus and his disciples may have sailed in. Based on the research, this boat would have been measured between 25 and 30 feet long and about 7 feet wide, and it had a deck in the bow and in the stern. And if you're not familiar with boat anatomy, the stern is the back of the boat, uh, which will show up in the next verse, and could usually be powered by sails and four oars, normally fitting up to 15 people max. Uh, Given the, the recent discovery, they've been able to recreate what this boat might have looked like for Jesus and his disciples. You can tell that it's not a rowboat, uh, but it's also not a, a seven-foot or a, a large deep-sea cruiser that would be able to take on seven-foot waves. So I bring up these details because I want us to feel like we're getting into the boat with Jesus and experiencing what is happening with his disciples. Let's continue with the story. Verse 37 again. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling up. This isn't the only time that they would face storm in this sea. As we heard from Camden's sermon a couple weeks ago in Mark 6, uh, there Jesus sends his disciples across the sea, and it says that, and he, Jesus, saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. But we read here that a great windstorm arose. Um, and the, uh, the description is pretty clear that this storm is of greater magnitude and deadly. Now add that to the text of, and the waves are breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling up. Now, I don't have a lot of experience boating, uh, but one of my sisters was a collegiate rowing athlete. And over Christmas, she told me the story of one, about one of their practices when a great storm arose, sending waves into their boat. And because this is a rowboat and is built for speed and performance, it's not meant to take on waves, uh, nor does it even have storage for life vests. Uh, they're basically sitting ducks <laughs> as, as the storm in this lake is coming into their boat. And their coach, uh, which would have been on a speedboat beside them, you know, using a megaphone, directing calls, goes for help, and he yells back to the athletes and says, you know, bail water with your hands. Like, <laughs> uh, to which my sister stops the story and says, Joel, there's absolutely nothing you can do when waves are crashing into your boat, in a rowboat. You are completely at mercy with the sea. Now back to the story. 
What do you suppose everyone was doing in this boat while it was actively sinking? Maybe they're all hands on deck, bailing water, trying to get the water out, calling out to the other boats nearby, perhaps crying out to God. What do you picture? What do you think Jesus was doing during this time? Let's read verse 38. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on a cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Now, this verse, out of all the others, has left me in questions. Uh, Two different reactions to the same storm. The disciples with terror, trained fishermen who are ready to do whatever it takes not to die, and Jesus, like fully asleep, in the back of the boat, at peace. Like, both happening in the same boat. I have a couple questions. Like, first, how is Jesus sound asleep in the boat that's sinking? Uh, this is the only story in the New Testament that references Jesus sleeping in a boat. And yet when I frame the story up, I can't help but think that this is the most unrealistic place to be sleeping. But we do know that Jesus had a very full day of teaching, and that he was fully human. But really? Like, we read that Jesus is in the back of this boat sleeping. Now, the text also says asleep on a cushion, so I think maybe the, the pillow helped. And for those of you that struggle with falling asleep, maybe look into what Jesus might have been using. Um, second question, were the disciples not supposed to wake up Jesus? In our culture, we use planes and, and cars more than boats, and rarely does everyone, anyone have a life or death situation. But when someone does, our innate survival kicks in, and we will do anything to save ourselves. And so I'm not surprised why the disciples decided to wake up Jesus. And the third question, was the cry from the disciples a rebuke of Jesus? Out of the other accounts of the story in Matthew and Luke, here the language from the disciples is the roughest. It's clear to see that they are crying for help, but in an accusatory way. So I want to stop and think about how we respond under pressure. Are we calm and mature, or are we usually short-tempered? I know the holidays just ended. A lot of families have been driving long distances with their kids for many hours. I don't have kids myself, but I have seven nieces and nephews, and I do know that a typical car scene that's long are hungry kids. Imagine a family dinner, and uh, on their way to Christmas at Grandma's, they had, the kids had an early lunch, their parents are trying to hold the hunger pains over till they get to dinner without stopping for a meal. As the long trip is almost over, from the back of the van, You hear, Mom, do you care if we starve tonight? (laughs) Now, these kids might have forgotten that their parents told them that they were going to Grandma's for dinner. But instead of asking or pleading in respect, the cries from the back of the van sound more like an accusation. But so for us, when when we lose sight of our patience and trust in God, and for the kids in this story, when they lose, lost trust in their parents for a promised meal, 
Our cries for help sound more like a rebuke than a plea. So when we turn back to the story, when the, when the disciples yell, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Like, what do you think about this question? To me, it sounds like the disciples are starting to question if Jesus loves them. They use the word care in a negative tense to assume Jesus is being careless about their lives. Maybe blaming Jesus for having crossing storms in the night, which they know would have been dangerous. Remember, these guys, some of them know the sea really well. Working these boats in these waters maybe six days a week. And they understand when it comes to a sinking boat out in the water, that means death. Now, kids, I hope you all received the coloring sheets and been following along because this part of the story is depicted on a sheet. So really listen in. Now, let's see how Jesus responds in an unpredictable way in verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. This is the climax of the story. In one moment, the seas are raging in. The waves are breaking into the boat. The disciples are panicking. They're thinking it's it for them. They muster enough courage to come to their teacher, wake him up. And Jesus awakes to respond, not to the disciples, but to the sea. In just a couple words, he silenced the winds and the sea, and the storm is over. Up until this point in Jesus' ministry, he has been performing miracles and healings on humans and casting out demons, but he has not done anything like this. This is something completely new to the disciples, which is why they respond the way they do in the next verse. But when you look back through Mark's gospel... This isn't entirely new for Jesus. Actually, this is the way Jesus speaks to demons. It's the same way he speaks to the wind and the sea. In chapter 1, 25, there's a man with an unclean spirit inside of him, and Jesus rebukes the spirit using the same words he uses here, and after peace. So what's the point? The point is Mark is showing us slowly who Jesus is slowly revealing that this man has the power to silence demons with one hand and has the power to silence the forces of nature with the other. After calming the storms, Jesus finally returns to his disciples uh, to respond to their initial rebuke. So listen here what Jesus says in verse 40. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? This is a sad question to be asked by Jesus. Two questions are asked. One about their fear. The other one about their lack of faith. And when we read this story, I don't know who wouldn't be afraid in this situation. I don't know who wouldn't want to fight for their life. Yet, Jesus expects more from them. How how can he say that? Does Jesus expect the disciples to be fearless, like asleep in the boat with him? Like, no, I don't think that. 
Instead, he wants them to see clearly. He wants them to understand. He wants them to come alongside his ministry. He wants them to trust him. Is that you this morning? Are you seeing Jesus clearly and trusting him? Or do you relate to these disciples who are fearful of the unknown? If you aren't, I want to encourage you this morning that this is the confidence you can have as a Christ follower. You can face the biggest fears in life, even the ones that may take your life with confidence and faith in God and faith in Christ. When I, when I think about these verses and a high call not to be afraid, I am comforted by passages such as in Psalms 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let's read how the disciples respond. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now notice the three greats linked across these stories. A great windstorm, great calm, and now great fear. Is this the same fear from the storms? No. The fear, that they, the, fear of the storms um, was what Jesus rebuked them, but now they're fearing great fear and wonder at the God-man Jesus who calms the storm. Then they ask a great question. Whose then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples have been with Jesus every day. They've been eating, sleeping, helping in his ministry. They've heard his explanations from teachings. They've seen his healing power, and Jesus has claimed him as his own family over his own. They've seen him defend his ministry of Jewish leaders. They've seen him reveal the kingdom of God. But yet, they don't have a category for this. They've seen all these things, yet they, they know the Old Testament stories, stories of Jonah, and God calming the storms and saving the sailors. Moses performing the unthinkable and splitting the Red Sea. But who is this guy? That nature itself obeys his words. Mark ends this short story with the disciples in great fear, trying to understand what they have just seen and asking the most important question. But it also gives us a challenge to read, um, to ask the same question. And based on what you've seen and heard today, who do you say that he is? Now this, this story of the storm and this verse is the clearest gospel foreshadow. It begs an answer like any good book and, and leaves us for the need to decide how we're going to respond. And to help any of us out this morning, I want to be clear of any confusion and read about one of the most unlikely, unlikely people that would have answered this question correctly. That at the end of Mark's gospel, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and a Roman centurion, not, a, not the Jews or anyone that would have known the Bible, but a Gentile out of all people, speaks clearly and answers the question from this story. Mark 15, 37 says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two 
from top to bottom. And when a centurion who stood facing him and saw that this it was the way he was, breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, there are several things that we could focus on and take away from this story. But I want to focus in on one thought. I want us to explore how we should respond when we are faced with fear. It's New Year's Eve, and as we face 2024, I think it could be a helpful exercise to think about difficulties or challenging times that you or your family faced this previous year. I know that not all tough scenarios are the same size or magnitude, and not all of them are sudden storms, but develop over time through worry and anxiety. Many families in our church have gone through health issues and praying through healing, some struggling through relational difficulties with family, friends, or work. Regardless of the nature, all these challenges have a similar backbone, a fear of the unknown. To help us answer how we respond when afraid, I want to skip ahead in Mark's gospel to what Jesus was doing when he was about to be killed and crucified. Now, while we read this, think back to this passage today and pay close attention to what Jesus is doing. So if you will, turn with me to Mark 14, starting in verse 32. I'm going to read this whole section here. Ending in verse 42. And they went to the place of Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible... The hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came to them a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. My betrayer is at hand. Now, there's a lot going on in these verses, but I wanted to point out a couple observations in comparing these stories and really focusing on what Jesus is doing. Now, I think it's interesting that Jesus was asleep on the boat uh, during the disciples' greatest hour of need. And now it seems to be the complete opposite. When Jesus is guaranteed going to die in his hour of need, the disciples are fast asleep on him. But I really want to focus in on what Jesus was doing. I think this will help answer our question of how to respond in fear. Do you remember what the disciples responded to Jesus in their time of need? 
Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? How different is this from what Jesus is doing? Jesus is crying out to God and pleading for his favor. That he would take away this cup. That he would find another way. He cries out, all things are possible for you. Yet, Jesus submits his will to the Father, totally relying his future in his hands. Jesus has faith in his Father. Not only that, Jesus knows his Father cares and loves him. And so he prays, entrusting his life into his Father's hand. Now, do we do this? I struggle to think that in all areas of my life, I react in this wise way and put my life in my Father's hands. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't think you've ever done this. You don't think you've ever stopped and humbled yourself in front of the Lord in times of fear and terror. And to this, I would say, don't wait. Don't wait until you're at your wit's end to respond and understand Jesus was calling his disciples much earlier to see and have faith in him before the storm. And the same can be true for you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you're currently drowning in fear. Instead of submitting your will, you sound more like the disciples. God, do you not care about me? I've given my life to you, but I didn't ask for these trials. We often stop too short. And don't surrender our burdens before the Lord in prayer. How different I think our lives would look if we did more of what Jesus was doing before he went to the cross and less of what the disciples did in the storm. Less of our will, but more of God's will. When it comes to previous trials we have faced and the unknown storms we face ahead, Jesus is calling us not to fear, but to come to God in prayer. To not doubt that he cares, but to seek his will, not our own. He wants us to have faith in God. He wants to have faith in Christ, who died in our place. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to read your wondrous works this morning. Your word gives us life and reminds us of your love and care for us. May we be encouraged by the story of you calming the waters in reminding us who you are, the Son of God who came to die for our sins. And as we leave this morning, encourage the saints that we have no fear in death, for you came and died for us in our place. Give us the spirit that we may respond in trust when we face trials in this next year. By by your will we pray. Amen.